and uh, make sure that you're sharing this stream and letting people know where you are on this Sunday. Well, I'm very excited to uh, be preaching out of the Misquoting God series for today. Um, I'm, this is going to be, unless, unless the Lord pivots it in my heart, this is going to be our last week in this series. And I, I hope it's been enjoyable for you as we've looked at different Bible verses and, and just uh, explored some of the things that are in Scripture that can oftentimes be misquoted, misunderstood. There we go. I was wondering where my, when my volume would kick in. That could be misquoted, misunderstood, misapplied in our lives. So last week, if you don't remember, we looked at um, the story in John 9 about the individual who was born blind, and we asked this particular question of, about sin and how oftentimes we think that when some Something bad is happening in our lives that it is a direct result to God's punishment. And we talked about how oftentimes that's a misconception, and in reality, we live in a fallen world. And sometimes by living in a fallen world, by no fault to ourselves, because this world is fractured, we at times experience tragedy. And we shouldn't always associate the tragedy or the misfortune of our own lives as God hating us or God's judgment upon us, but rather we just need to use that as an opportunity to be able to glorify Him even more and show everybody else around us a beautiful picture of who He is. Well, this week we're going to be looking at a very important verse, I believe, out of the book of Acts, as well as Proverbs. And it has to do specifically with this concept of, of parenting and children. And I even this morning, I went on Facebook and I posted, and I just a reminder to everybody um, that listens to us on the stream, um, that this is a good message, I believe, that if you're a parent who has children at home, or who has seen children leave your home, but regardless of that, I think it's a good message for everybody, because I think the principle that we're going to be talking about today really applies to all people during all ages of life in all seasons of life. So that's what we'll be talking about today. So before we actually jump into the message, though, I'd like us to enter into a time of prayer just one more time. Uh, so if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, to be able to come to you in prayer, that you invite us to pray, that you invite us to let our request be known to you. So right now we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be with us today, that he would give me the words to say as I try to communicate your word clearly and effectively to God's people. Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see how you are moving and ears to hear what you are saying and that ultimately we would leave here, Lord, a little differently with a better perspective of who you are and how you are calling us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the year 2018, I was heading off into another missions trip. And in this particular missions trip, I was traveling south to a third world country and was taking all the precautions that I could at that time. I was on malaria pills. I got a couple of shots to make sure that I wouldn't get sick. 
And uh, I was going with a flight organization that would charter these, these trips specifically for Christian missions. So they would supply resources and, and medical supplies and foods and things like that, and they would bring them to different uh, third world countries where long-term missionaries were there. And I was at that time commissioned to bring a short-term missions team um, to help build a school, at least help build the second level of an existing school. So what we were going to do is, is we were going to finish out the second floor, and we were going to put a roof on the building and paint the church that was nearby and just help out and be a blessing. So we brought some engineers with us, and we headed out into this old plane that was being chartered um, for the missions project. Now, one fun fact about this old plane is they didn't have pressurized cabins. So if you didn't know that what that would mean would be that if you got to a certain altitude and you went past it, it would get harder and harder to breathe. So we ended up having to fly pretty low, just below 12,000 feet or so, in order for the oxygen levels to be healthy and all right for all the passengers that were on the plane. And I, at one point in the flight, I got invited to go up into the cockpit, and there was kind of a jump seat behind uh, both of the pilots there that I could sit on. Now, the plane was a propeller plane. It wasn't a jet plane, so you, you heard a loud humming from the engines that would go on, and the whole plane, you kind of had to talk a, a few octaves uh, hot, uh, louder in order for people to hear you. Uh, but in, in, in the cockpit, you really couldn't hear anything because everybody was facing forward, so there was no easy way to hear how people were talking. So what you would have to do is you would put on a headphone and just question any any anybody here ever uh, fly on small single engine planes ha or have a, a, a private pilot's license any of you guys all right so what you normally do if you're in a situation like that is you get um, a pair of headphones that muffles out the, the outside noise and then the headphones typically have a microphone attached to it just like this and then you're able to hear each other talk so I did that, I put on the headphones, and I started talking to the pilots who serve as missionaries of sorts, doing these missions flights every single week to different parts of the global south. And as I was talking, we're going to switch over, sorry guys, we're going to switch over to pulpit. The conversation got brought up about uh, my wife who was pregnant. And so we started talking about it, and, and uh, I started telling him how I was kind of nervous about this flight, and even though I did all the right precautions and preparing and, 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 and kind of making sure that I was going to be healthy and safe, there was still this looming fear over me, if you will, that what if something happened? You see, life changes a little bit, right, when, when you end up having a child, you start to look at the motorbike a little bit differently. You start to look at skydiving a little differently. At least if you don't, your wife does on your behalf. <laughs> and you start to realize that if I go, there might be consequences that affect more than one person. And I started to think about my child and, and what would happen if I died or what would happen to my wife if I died. And that's a, a good time if you sell life insurance to talk to somebody like that, right? <laughs> Someone ended up doing that for me. <laughs> but m more on a practical level, you just think about the, sh the hole that will be left in that situation. 
So I was thinking about that, and I was worried about that, and I was doing everything that I could to be safe in that situation. I had been to third world countries and poor countries before, so I kind of knew somewhat some of the things to navigate in situations. And the people are almost always kind, but you still just have to be careful with some of the things that go on, especially theft or robbery and things like that. So I was trying to do as much as I could, but in reality, there was a fear bigger than my death in that situation. You see, I have been serving in ministry on staff in one way or another since 2008. And um, even though my wife and I, we've been married since 2012, it took us a little while before we decided to have children. But one of my biggest fears, and it still in some ways remains a fear for me, is a fear of my children's faith. You see, I don't know if you know this, but pastors' kids in particular sort of have a a certain kind of reputation. Some of you are giggling and you already know what I'm getting to here. But pastors' kids aren't always altar boys, let's just say that much. And oftentimes, pastors' kids are known to be somewhat rebels and to somewhat drift away from the faith. If you ask around, that's usually what you end up hearing. And here's the thing, greater people than me have made mistakes. So if greater people than me have made mistakes and screwed the pooch, then of course I was worried as well. And this was kind of kind of carried over my life as a, as a dark cloud, if you will. I was worried that my, my son, which I don't even know if I knew that it was a boy at that time, uh, was, was going to in some ways drift away from the faith. You would think that being a pastor's child, that this child would have all the opportunities to learn the right Bible verses, to hear the right sermons, to get the right parenting at home. But I think what ends up happening to pastor's kids is sometimes this association between the stresses of dad and and being at the church, kids start to muddy itself with a view of God, or they start to resent that. Or sometimes in certain congregations, the people could expect too much out of the children and they could measure the children out of the measuring rod of their own years instead of the child's years. So when the pilot all of a sudden started to talk about how he was a pastor's kid, my ears perked up and I started to lift out of my seat because you see I had been quizzing people at that time and asking them, As pastors, what did you do for your children to help them navigate the difficulty of being a pastor's kid? But here's the thing, right? Whether you're a pastor or not, if you're a Christian and you care about your children's eternal destiny, then you most likely have wrestled with something similar to this at one time of your life, right? Where you desire for your children to to not only do better than you in life in whatever regard that you think of, but to not make the same mistakes as you, to honor God in a better way than you have honored him. That's what we desire, right? That's what we want of our children, right? 
So I was all ears and ready to listen to whatever this gentleman had to say. But the fears of being a father is great, and I know that the fears of being a parent is great. And when I share these things, I'm sure you start to think of your own children if you haven't. Maybe you have a child right now who you know has drifted or is drifting away from their faith, from what you've tried to instill to them. So my hope is, is that as we look at Acts 31, we will take some needed time to be able to understand this important verse. So I'd like to read this verse to you, and like I said earlier, we're going to be in mainly in Acts 16 today, so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. And I'd like to read Acts 16.31. It says this, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. But what comes after that? You and your household. You see, I remember growing up in a church and hearing this verse several times, and it would oftentimes be accompanied with another verse out of Proverbs 22.6, and we'll put that one on the screen real quick. Start, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. And I would hear these two verses kind of in unison with each other as a way to in some ways say that all you need to be able to do is get saved yourself. And here's a promise from the Bible that says that if you are saved, your children will also be saved. And in fact, they would use Acts 16.31 as a proof text, if you will, that if your children weren't saved, that you were somehow doing something wrong because here is a God's promise. And they would look down upon you and apply these two verses as a way of saying you've done something wrong. Now maybe you've read these verses before, or maybe you've been in a church where something like that was the common cultural milieu, if you will. And maybe because of that, you've felt weighed down and, and, and heavy in realizing that that did not happen for you. That your children haven't walked in the faith the way that you desired for them to walk in the faith. Well, today for our Misquoting God series, I want to give some hope to you and help you understand that that verse, as beautiful as it is, have, has been misapplied. That it is not saying that the key to your, your child's salvation, the guarantee, I should say, of your child's salvation is your salvation. But in order to do that, I think we need to read the surrounding verses that accompany Acts 16.31 so we can, as, as we would say in seminary, exegete the text properly so that we don't take it out of its context but instead allow Scripture to, de to find Scripture. So let's look at it in its entire context entirety. So Acts 16, 
What is going on in Acts 16? Well, Paul and Barnabas had completed their first missionary journey and kind of traveled through Europe and Asia Minor into spreading the gospel, planting churches, and helping people know who Jesus is. Then after that, they start talking to each other and they start planning a second missionary journey to go to many of the same places in order to check in on people and continue to encourage them in their faith. But Barnabas in particular wants to bring this man named John Mark, but Paul doesn't like this guy named John Mark. See, John Mark got a little cowardly one day and decided to abandon them. So because of this disagreement, Paul and Barnabas go separate ways and Paul takes Silas with him. Fun fact, John Mark is the same guy who authored the Gospel of Mark. Paul and him would later on reconcile. So Paul and Silas are now traveling through Europe and Asia Minor, and they, in chapter 16, they end up in the region of, of Philippi, in this Macedonian Greek city. And there, God is starting to move. The Holy Spirit is moving in powerful ways through, through their ministry. And this woman named Lydia, in particular, gets saved and through that creates inroads into that area to be able to influence people and allow other people to get saved. But things all of a sudden take a turn for the worse when Paul and Silas cast out a demon from this girl who is serving as a fortune teller. Her parents decide to slander Paul and Silas. So Paul and Silas end up going to prison because you see the parents of this girl were using this, this sla- or sorry, this, the slave owners of this girl were using this child as a way to, to profit off of her sad state. So Paul and Silas end up getting thrown in prison. And not just thrown in prison, they're literally stripped naked, beaten, flogged with rods, and then put into a prison cell. And that is exactly where these verses find themselves in. In Acts chapter 16. Now I want to read for you a couple of scriptures and we're going to be in verse 23 now and we'll also have it on the screen for you. It says in verse 23, after they had been gently, no, after they have been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. This would not be comfortable, right? They're already dealing with, with a broken, beaten body, and then now they get strapped in the inner cell, which is probably very dark since electricity didn't exist, ba- or at least the electricity the way that we wire it didn't exist back then. It was probably incredibly dark, and then they were fastened in these stocks. Now take notice of what comes next, church. Pay close attention to this. 
After about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns from the blue hymnal. It doesn't say that, but we we know it's true, right? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) To God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now, let's take a moment to appreciate this. You see, I think the easy thing for us to do is get really excited about the miracle. And that's not wrong. It's not a bad thing to get excited about miracles. I want to see miracles. I've seen some miracles in my life in one way or another. But, and it's good to get excited about that. But sometimes when we get so excited about the miracle, we could forget the moment that is happening before the miracle. Do you get what I'm saying here? And what is happening before the miracle? Well, Paul and Silas are in an incredibly low place in their lives, if you think about it. If you were put in their situation and you were literally stripped naked, then beaten by flogs, then thrown into a dark prison cell, all for doing good works for the kingdom of God, for literally liberating somebody who was demon-possessed, and preaching the gospel, and having all these pure, altruistic, if you will, motives to be able to build the kingdom of God, and yet you find yourself in the darkness of prison, most of you, including me, would be having very special conversation with God using probably very choice words, right? But how do Paul and Silas respond from that? What is it that they do? I mean, try to wrap your your hands around that once more. They're stripped, they're beaten, they're locked in a stock. They are most likely hungry, worn out, in severe pain without any medical relief. They're not on Tylenol. I mean, life doesn't get worse than this situation. In their first initial response in the midst of this struggle is to do what? To worship. To pray. To sing. Church, we don't always have a good reason to worship. But the point of worship is not singing. It's putting our focus on God. And I just have one big point for us today. And that is worship is how we overcome. I've said this before in our church. But it's such an important point that it it bears me saying it again. Worship is how we overcome. That's where I should get an amen. Amen. Church worship. Thank you. Thank you. You see, Chris is on it. I like that. Thank you, Chris. Worship is how we overcome because the enemy wants to stop you from worship. Did you hear that? The enemy wants to stop you from worshiping God. I know it's an odd response to kind of go from torture to worship. It can almost seem like masochistic to to do that. But you have to understand the kind of person that Paul and Silas were. 
They were the kind of people that were so utterly devoted to God and the grace of the gospel and experiencing this in such a powerful, almost just life, it is fair to say, life-altering way that it's almost like every single other experience that they could go through in life would pale in comparison to knowing that God had reconciled them, that God had forgiven them, that God had died for them and that God had rose from the grave and that they would too. Church, do you hold that same kind of perspective or are your problems bigger than your God? Oftentimes we worship our problems more than we worship our God. Well, what are you saying there, Pastor Kevin? I don't sing any songs to my problems. Well, let me help you understand what worship actually is. Because you see, I think sometimes we have a false understanding of worship. I mean, we, we purposely say things like, oh, okay, we're going to continue in worship in our service. Or Jess is going to lead us in worship and things like that. And we understand that worship is oftentimes associated with singing a song. That's how our society kind of classifies it. But in reality, worship is so much more than a song. It is a posture. So let's look for just a second at what worship is according to the Bible. I'm going to read a verse for you that comes from Psalm 95, 6 through 7. It says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Now, the word in Gre- uh, the word that is used here for worship in Hebrew is kalva, and what that means is 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 in some ways what it means is to properly to live by implication to declare or show and some other people would even say to bow down so that's why that phrase bow down exists right before the worship it is a posture so if it is a posture then worship is more than song it's a way of life When you worship, you are in some ways in posture declaring your focus, declaring your affections. This is why in Romans 12.1, it actually defines what true and uh, proper worship looks like. Romans 12.1, which is again on the screen, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to, so in some ways what, it, the, what Paul is saying here in Romans is that in view, in looking at what God has done in his merciful ways, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So here, the way that Paul is defining worship is how? By offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper what? Worship. 
So true and proper worship isn't memorizing all the songs on the Christian radio. True and proper worship, at least according to Romans 12, 1, and through uh, looking at some of the Hebrew of Scripture, is a posture of bowing down. It's a posture of living your life as a living sacrifice. That is what true and proper worship looks like. So when we see Paul and Silas singing, it's not because there's, they're, they're kind of a nutty, nutty in their head and they have some loose screws. It's because they lived a life, regardless of their circumstance, regardless if they were going through a high season of life or a low season of life, in what type of posture? A posture of worship. Pastor Kevin, what in the world does this have to do with me raising my children? <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there, okay? So be, be patient with me. Church, worship happens when we are sacrificial with our lives. When we conform our minds to the Lord's mind, that's when worship happens. You see, the enemy wants to prevent you from worship. Here is what the enemy tries to do in preventing you from worship. He tries to isolate you. He tries to distract you. He tries to make your mind pessimistic. And he wants you to focus on the problem and not on the solution. Ask yourself, I have four things up there. Has this ever, any one of those four things ever existed in your life? That is the enemy trying to have his way in your life. Just as a way of encouragement, if you've ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, that is a great example, fictitiously, of, of what it could look like. We don't know, but what it could look like. How, how the enemy tries to attack his, uh, God's people. Look, sometimes we, we do this to ourselves. But that is still, I believe, the goal and how the enemy tries to prevent us from worshiping. He tries to isolate us. This is why, as a pastor, I've, I've tried to navigate the last year as carefully as I can understanding some of the health concerns that we all are facing, but the reality that Scripture calls us to do what? To gather. So in some ways, we, we try to navigate these things because I believe that when the enemy isolates us and prevents us from being in community, we are incredibly vulnerable. Look at some of the major religions that have started. You'll notice that their founders typically got their revelation while they were in isolation. Just look at uh, Mormonism and Islam as an example of that. The enemy wants you to focus on your problems and not the solution. Why does he want to do that? Well, because he knows that where there is worship, there is freedom. Amen? He cannot stand to be in a place of worship. When we praise the Lord, when we are singing songs, when we are, uh, not even when we're singing songs, but when we are allowing God to be the center focus of our life, regardless of the situation, that is the place the enemy cannot stand to be. Which is why when we worship, there is freedom. Look, if you find yourself in prison, I'm not saying that if you sing, the chains will 
will, will come up. <laughs> but it's almost like God allowed in this moment a visible manifestation of the freedom that Silas and Paul had in their hearts, right? It's almost like, like what was happening in the supernatural just made its way out into the natural and the chains of their lives literally fell off. But here's the thing. They were already free. Whether they were in chains or not, Paul and Silas were already free. But let's listen to what happens next. It says in verse 27, the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, when I first read that, I thought he was about to kill Paul and Silas and everybody else, but he's about to kill himself. Why? Well, because the jailer recognizes that um, this isn't a normal thing that happens, and he's on watch. So if he gets caught and all the prisoners are gone, what do you think is going to happen to him? Well, he's going to end up in prison himself and most likely in a, a worse situation for being a traitor. So the easier solution for this man is to take his own life. So he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself and he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, because it's dark that he didn't know that the prisoners were still there. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. What a picture is that, huh? Now, kind of amazed in this moment of what happens next because this person comes down this jailer comes down and literally falls before Paul and Silas and listen to what he says he then brought them out and asked sir what must I do to be saved it's almost like God short-circuited this and, and rewired it so that it would happen more quickly. But immediately, the jailer recognized that something was at work. That whatever Paul and Silas had been talking about, singing about, demonstrating, that it was more real than he ever could have imagined. So he gets right to the point and he says, what must I do to be saved? Now, when he asked that question to Paul and Silas, we, we kind of take for granted Paul and Silas's character. Because when he asked that question to him, what he could have said if he wanted to, is he could have said, well, you can let me free. Right? He could have said, you can give me all your money. <laughs> He could have said those things. And sadly enough, we've seen people in all religions, and not just religions, but in, in all areas of, of leadership, sometimes take advantage of their opinion or, or of their position, right? Where they make, especially in Christianity, where they make Jesus plus something else. But listen to what Paul and Silas say. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul and Silas could have said anything in that moment, 
They could have asked for their freedom. They could have asked for uh, the gentleman's wealth. But instead, they just speak the truth into his life. They're not looking to be freed because they're already free. But they speak the truth into this person's life. The famed reformer from Geneva, John Calvin, he wrote this, We must note that after we have embraced Christ by faith, that alone is sufficient to salvation. What is he saying there? You don't need to tack on anything in order to be saved. That faith in Christ alone is what's sufficient for our salvation. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that faith in Christ alone is sufficient for your salvation? After this moment, the jailer invites Paul and Silas to meet his family, and and then they end up having a conversation. And Scripture literally kind of makes it, it makes it a point to say that that the jailer was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God he and his whole household. You see, I don't know exactly why Paul, or at least um, Luke, who wrote this, uh, wrote those words in that you and your household would be saved. But what I believe he it was trying to do, I don't think he was what he was trying to communicate. It was a promise that if you're saved by effect, all your children are saved. I think that's a false idea. But I think the Holy Spirit knew that through this conversation, his whole family would get saved. And scripture even points out that his whole household believed. So it still takes the time to say that each individual in that household needed to believe for themselves. So let me let you off the hook with something. When I referenced those verses late earlier, the Proverbs verse about train a child up in the way you should go and you won't depart from it, or the Acts uh, 16.31 that we just read, what it's not saying is, is that if you just tell your child and, and, and force into your child their Christianity, then boom, they're Christians. But rather, you have a lasting impact and impression on their lives. This jailer had by way of his own faith, had a lasting impact and impression on the lives of his household. Parents, we cannot take that for granted. You know, I didn't finish the story about the pilot because as I had said earlier, I had been quizzing people about what they do as someone who is a pastor or maybe was a pastor's kid in order to to set them up well so that they don't become bitter towards their faith. I asked probably over 15 people that question. And I loved this gentleman's response in particular. What he told me was to live a life of worship and authenticity in front of your children. It was as simple as that for him. Why do you think that was probably so profound? Because here's the thing. I, I know that it's, sometimes when something's so simple, we can in some ways not realize how profound it is. But here's the thing, church. 
I still have a ways to go before my kids are, are grown adults. But I believe, because I've seen it by my own two eyes, that when we live authentic lives, when we live the kinds of life that we overcome through worship, when we live a life that is in a posture of worship, it has a way of being contagious. It has a way of causing other people who aren't Christian to take notice of that, to desire that, to want that, to appreciate that. I mean, think about why you became a Christian. There was most likely somebody in your life that did that for you. So how do I wrap this up and tie it into this topic of parenting? Well, regardless if you're a parent or not, whether you're a mom or dad or not, I believe, church, that God wants you to live a life of worship, true and genuine worship. Are you living that life? Are you allowing those around you, especially your children, to see their God? Or to see the God that you want them to be theirs through your life. If you're not, that's the place you need to start. Because that's the best thing that you can do for them. I have a few application points that I'll get to at the benediction time. But I want to use this next moment to pray now. Because here's the thing. For some of us, our kids are no longer home, right? And we all know of somebody who might be in a situation where a kid has strayed from the faith. Or maybe we know somebody that has strayed from the faith and we feel like we're a direct result of that. Ultimately, it's up to someone to decide for themselves. But let's take some time to just confess to the Lord our need to do better to worship him in the highs and lows of life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that through the scriptures, Lord, that we have this opportunity to see this timeless truth in our lives, to cling on to these powerful stories of faith that have the opportunity to transform us. Lord, we confess that we have not always worshipped you in spirit and truth. We have not always worshipped you with lives that are living sacrificially. We have not always worshipped you in a posture of bowing down before you. Sometimes we just worship you in song, but not in deed. And we understand that that impacts the people around us. Lord, we confess our shortcomings, but we pray, Lord, that in this moment that you would help us, that you would create in, in us a new heart, Lord. That you would allow the Holy Spirit to impact us in such a way that we feel convicted for the areas that we do wrong. But in that, Lord, we strive to worship you more. Lord, I believe that it is through worship that we overcome. And in that worship, we find freedom. 
We thank you, Lord. Because your name is worthy to be worshipped, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that worship is hard sometimes. It's hard for me. And Kevin and I were talking last Sunday about how the closing song, the Holy Spirit, picked it. Picking songs for Sunday service can sometimes be a burden more than an act of worship. And the Holy Spirit still speaks to us through the songs that we choose. And I think this song, again, was put here by the Holy Spirit. And if we could just pray that God really would change our hearts and that we would come to him in a posture of worship this this morning. Change my heart, oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, may I be like you. this week I have a little bit longer of an application and I might need to read just a little bit to you today. But the reason is, is because I, I, I feel like today's message is so important because it's, it's just one of those, I know every week I say every message is important, but I think it's one of those things that if we get this right, man, so many other things fall into place. So I want you to get this right. So please take this application, especially this week, seriously. I want you to take time this week to worship God. As simple as that. When you are happy, to worship. When you are feeling tears or anger, to worship God. You can listen to a song. You can sing. You can simply put your hands up and bow down without music. As long as you are placing your affections on him and doing that in a way that is true. 
If you're a parent, and especially if you're a parent with young children, I want you to think about and evaluate if there is something that you can do specifically to implement it into your weekly rhythm to help your kids be trained up in their faith. Just some suggestions of things that you can do. You could pray before a special moment of the day. So maybe before you go to school, you could pray a blessing over your child or uh, just pray for your child and have him pray or her pray with you. You can pray during dinner time. You could pray at bedtime and take time to maybe even pray for other people, not just what you want. You could write down memory verses and stick it on a fridge. And you can just talk openly about your faith and why it is you take them to church on Sundays and why you think that's so important. If you're an older parent and today's message spoke to you and you want to continue to encourage your children in their faith, whether they've wandered away or not, I want you to especially take time to think about your life, to reflect on the things that, that, that maybe you feel like you weren't worshipful with. To ask God for forgiveness, and if it is appropriate, to ask your children for forgiveness as well. And then continue to pray for them and model as best as you can a worshipful life. Could you do that, church, this week for me, whether you're mom or dad or not? <laughs> awesome. Well, we are excited to enjoy our time out in the mountains this upcoming week. I really hope that you are there. And even if you don't spend the night, I hope that you take um, some time to maybe even just come down and, and allow the Lord to refresh you. Again, if you haven't signed up and the only thing that is keeping you is money, we don't want that to be a reason not to come. So talk to one of us, talk to myself, talk to Barb, um, talk to Jess, and we will make sure that you're there. Um, otherwise, we will see you the week after next if you're not coming to camp, and we are excited for that as we hopefully will kick off a new series, uh, which remains to be seen. <laughs> so I will, I've been praying about it. I've been kind of jumping between a couple books, so we'll, we'll end up seeing where, where we go. Uh, but may the peace of the Lord be with you, and we look forward to seeing you at camp.